Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I'm talking with the founder and editor-in-chief of Noon, a web resource for women who've reached the midpoint of life and know that another half beckons, both personally and professionally. Eleanor is an award-winning editor, writer, and broadcaster. She worked for the Sunday Times in the UK for 23 years as editorial director and editor of the Sunday Times magazine. She's also a columnist and interviewer, and she's interrogated everyone from Mikhail Gorbachev to Sheryl Sandberg and Theresa May. She is, you will see, a force of nature, as well as a force for good. So today I'm absolutely delighted to have a friend and colleague, Eleanor Mills, with us on Four Quarter Lives. Eleanor, welcome. Thanks for having me. You've created this amazing noon movement out of your own personal experience with both age and gender around a very unfriendly and badly brought up employer. So <laughs> let's start with what happened to you, when and why. Well, I think like many women who approach 50 within the media industry, I'd worked for a very big newspaper for 23 years, the Sunday Times, and they brought in a new editor and suddenly my services were no longer required. That was a huge blow, personal and professional. Talk about a sudden wake up. It was a massive catapult into a massive midlife shift. And at the time, it felt horrible, you know, outcasting from tribe. I felt like I'd been pushed off a roof. It was completely grim. And it was also right at the beginning of the pandemic. But now... Double double trouble, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I look back now three years on, it probably is the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's been amazing, the the path I've been on since and what I've learned and how much happier I am, you know, has been great. But I will not deny that the being made redundant was really, really unbelievably horrible and painful. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of our listeners can completely empathize as so many of them. And now currently, as so many companies are letting off tens of thousands of people that they're in midlife, this impact is rippling around. So how did you recover? And how did you get the idea for Noon? Where did that emerge from in the depths of this despair and shock? Yeah, the recovery, well, it was, I suppose the pandemic was a huge moment of transition for everybody. So I think in some ways, being whacked just before it was probably a kind of blessing in disguise, because it's not like everything that I'd been doing at my old employer was going on. Basically, from the moment that I left, they were all at home trying to put out a newspaper yeah. from their bedrooms. You know, it was it was hideous. You so I actually think you I, weren't isolated and weird. You were part of a much larger. Yeah, I was part of a much larger thing. And I think what really helped was a, I was at home with all my family, which was fab. And B, I did lots of kind of, I did lots of walks. I had lots of time to for myself, which I hadn't had. You know, I've been a working mum. I've been on a huge national newspaper since I was in my early 20s. It kind of gave me a moment to pause and to think about why I'd worked as hard as I had for so long, I mean, I'd been so successful, and I don't say that in a boasting way, but I've been so successful that I really had ticked 
hell of a lot of achievement boxes. And I think I was kind of asking myself, well, you know, how much success is enough? At what point do you decide that those drivers have kind of run their course, you know? And I think it also, once I'd recovered from the shock of it, it gave me a real opportunity to to kind of work on myself a bit. I, I was describing it when, to somebody the other day as being a bit like a large kind of unruly bush that needed a good pruning. <laughs> like it was scary. Very flattering. <laughs> With your hairstyle, that goes very well. <laughs> See, I've got very mad curly hair. So I felt a bit like a really wild wisteria or a wisteria that had just been kind of growing and sprouting, which had been really kind of cut back. And I think that what it allowed me to do was it's really allowed me to kind of concentrate my energies and really think about me kind of as me, which I think I kind of hadn't really done, which really fits in a lot with what you're talking about, about the, the four quarter lives. Um, so I got the idea for Noon, like all good journalists, I've been a columnist for years for the Sunday Times. And so I knew that things that were happening to me tended to also be kind of really registering with other people. I mean, I knew that if something was really a big thing in my you, life. You know how to pick up the vibes and the trends. Yeah, well, I think... Yeah, I think there's a confidence that which is that if you're being beset by something, then other people will probably care about it too. So I had this idea for me because I thought if I'm in such trouble in my own transition and I can remember Googling redundancy and getting the HMRC website, which I can promise you was not inspiring. HMRC not- for our international re- listeners will be the UK government website on some kind of tax. It, no, it's got it's her, her Majesty's revenue, and you know it's like the IRS. You know it was yeah. not inspiring. So, and what I was looking for was something which would guide me from where I was in this kind of pit of despair, feeling like you know everything was a disaster, into what my next kind of iteration might be. I felt quite strongly right from the beginning that I didn't want another job as a newspaper executive. Yeah, that I was going to set off in a new direction and. But I just couldn't see anything there. I mean, you could kind of Google like reinvention. You get 50 ways to reinvent yourself. A very classic state, right? You absolutely know you no longer want to do what you were, but you have absolutely no visibility on what you do want to do and what's (laughs) next. So that's pretty representative and a good sounding. And so is was noon set up basically as your way to figure it out? Well, no, it set up to, because I thought, well, if I, I'm really good at finding resources, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm out there to find information, to find stories that might help me. And I just couldn't find anything which acted like what I was looking for, but like the white pebbles, Hansel and Gretel's pebbles out of the wood with the Wicked Witch, you know, away from the house that was would, would take me into this, out of the dark forest, into a new future. And I just couldn't find anything that was doing that three years ago and so I really I've always been a great believer in the kind of a bar president Obama thing if you need to be the change that you want to see in the world you know if it doesn't exist then you need to create it so I set up noon because I thought this is the site that I want now I couldn't find and needed and I couldn't find it and so and I needed it and I actually think that that's quite a good basis for a kind of for a new business or a new kind of venture which is this is a service that I need which doesn't exist so I'm going to set it up and I was jolly lucky because I had an amazing network from having been a very senior editor for 25 years um I also found an investor very quickly because she really believed in what I was trying to do. So it was kind of one of those things where I had this idea and then suddenly it, it's kind moment. Of, it kind of suddenly had its moment and it suddenly started to happen. And really what it was about was I'm a great believer in the power of stories and storytelling. I know that that helps 
and works in changing people's attitudes and helping. So I really need the setup to be inspirational stories of how particularly women had pivoted at midlife into a new chapter. And so my, I called it Noon because I'd read The Hundred Year Life. I love the name. <laughs> that was when I first read the name. I said, this woman understands. <laughs> and, so, and I love that idea that at 50 in The Hundred Year Life, we're only halfway through. That made me feel more optimistic. And also I was just really, I began to see so many incredible women around me who had had a similar thing happened to them like me, tipped out of media at about 50 or whatever it was, and had then gone on to do some amazing things. So the strap line on noon is so much more to come. And I became obsessed by these stories of people who pivoted in midlife and that how it kind of exciting and how amazing this next kind of phase could be. But I also could see that none of that was being reflected in the wider culture. So I've always been interested in the kind of male lens of newspapers, particularly. And then I became really interested in the effect of women, that whole thing around, you know, women kind of have a sell-by date. We can talk about that some more in a while. But so Noon was about tackling gendered ageism and tackling those stereotypes and really telling the stories of incredible things that you could do at 50 that you weren't done. And we're three, now we're three years in. Noon is now practically a movement here in the UK. It's wonderful. I I have very much enjoyed being a part of it and going on some of your retreats, which were wonderful, and partaking in everything from book clubs to speaking engagements. Where are you now? You've put the word queenager on the map. So (laughs) please explain what it is and why you've done it. And then a little bit what your vision is now. For the future, what's it going to become? So Queenager, like the very word noon itself, for me is a kind of rebranding in the name. So really what I'm trying to do is to change the narrative that our culture tells about the later stages of women's lives. So I'm trying to build a business, and I'll tell you a bit more about that. But what I'm really trying to do is to change the story you know, to really shift the story that we tell about what women are for, how we value them. So I think in our culture, there's an obsession with youth. And when it comes to women, there's an obsession with them being fanciful, hot and fecund. That's basically how we're valued in our kind of current society and certainly within the mainstream media. So I was really interested in looking at all the things that women could be when those things are not the things that define them. And and so noon today is all about empowering, making feel more confident these groups of women. And as you know, you come to our noon circles where we get the women together. I do a newsletter every week on Substack called The Queen Ager. And I came across this word, The Queen Ager, because one of the first things we did when we set up noon is we did a big piece of research with the management consultancy firm Accenture which is the biggest study so far of women 45 to 65. I'm a bit of a boffin. I like a bit of data. And that was really fascinating because it's so interesting when you one's own kind of preconceptions or one's own kind of instincts are then borne out by this really big way. Very satisfying, isn't it? I was right all the time. I was right, exactly. Really really cheering. And the Queen Ager moniker came about because one of the women in the research said, I feel like a teenager 
but in my own house with posh sheets and nice tea and things like that. And so that really kind of stuck in my mind that this was like a kind of new teenager phase and they were talking about going to rock concerts and feeling very free once their children had flown the nest. And then I spent a lot of time in Jamaica and in Jamaica they had this whole thing about um, older women being queens. So kind of the queen Asia thing, just kind of, I'm a journalist, I'm a, I've written million. You've things. basically done a rebranding campaign from crones to queens. Oh, like, I hate the crones and hags and stuff. I really don't. I mean, I don't want to be a hag and I don't want to be a crone, but I would like to be a queen Asia. That sounds fun. And the whole point about the queen Asia is that you come into your prime in midlife. And what's really interesting is that I've been talking about this stuff for like for a couple of years. And then suddenly there's Michelle Yeoh at the Oscars going, don't let anybody say you're, you know, you're past your prime. And the British actress Helena Bonham Carter was on Women's Hour here the other day saying at 56, she feels like she's just coming into her prime. So I think we're beginning to shift the story. Actually, I think we're also beginning to fess up to a reality that we might have known that this is a very nice stage of life, particularly for women. But we haven't almost dared share that because it seems slightly politically incorrect what with all these generational issues and you know inequalities that people are very very careful i find about saying wow this is way better than i thought i don't know maybe a bit of that i think that the mainstream media are not interested in older women the only women that they want to portray who are older are ones who look incredibly young absolutely Um, the the heroic stance of the aging super Yeah, exactly. So kind of the only good older woman in the mainstream culture is one who looks like she's still kind of 25. But, you know, Ellen Mirren or something. Yeah, yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow or kind of. Well, and the fuss about Madonna recently. (laughs) I I mean, I don't see the Rolling Stones making their faces look like smooth babies before they go out on stage. They're quite happy to be be wrinkly reptiles. So Um, tell us the reality of Queen Ages. What's the profile? What do we know? What's been studied, measured? You've done some. What's still really unknown, ignored? The most interesting thing I think that came out of our research, which was in kind of several stages. So the main thing is this idea that Queen Ages are forged in fire. And that really made sense to me because it resonated with my own, this really dark time, this visit into the underworld, where you almost have to kind of go to regenerate, to kind of refine yourself. And there's a lot of that in all the ancient myths. I've been going back to the Assyrians, kind of um, Aeanna, who goes right down into the underworld. And then Ezekiel comes to rescue and she's hung on a hook for kind of, and while she, while she regenerates and then she comes back to life. So there's lots of that kind of. So we've all been hung on a hook for a few decades. I think that resonates. Yeah, yeah. Well, I certainly felt like I've been hung on a hook maybe for a few months. I tend to do things quite quick. So this forged in fire idea is what we found in the research is that more than 50% of Queen Ages have had five big, massive life events than by the time that they were 50. And many of those took place in a kind of concertina between about kind of, you know, 45 and 50. So we're talking divorce, bereavement, redundancy, elderly parents coming to bits, teenagers. We've got an epidemic of mental illness at the moment around, around teenagers. So lots of women really, really having challenging situations with their teens. Then if you add into that a bit of your own health issues, a bit of menopause, um, a it's a lot which hits women at this point. So we talk about that at noon as the midlife pinch point. But I think what's interesting and what nobody talks about is that after that pinch point is this amazing possibility of renaissance. And we saw that in the research so that the women who'd been through the most 
were then the most likely to be happy. So they talk about being delightedly divorced or I really feel like I'm just getting the hang of life. And, and, the, and the you're nodding. I mean, it's really funny when they talk about this to a room of women, everybody nods, you know, they go divorced, but oh yeah, I've got a tick, 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 you know. But I think that there's also this amazing optimism that comes from that experience, that wisdom, that knowing that you can survive, that you are can kind of replete unto yourself that you know who you are and you know what you want. So that's the forged in fire bit. And that has, I think, is incredibly powerful. And in that I wrote optimistic arc. Late love and the happiness yeah. that women find in, in the mating they may do it in maturity. So I can completely vouch for um, the, the, the going the through sweet, the fire. Exactly. So the sweetness of it. So it can be love. It can be, for me, I feel so fired up by this business that I've started and this community and this movement that I'm building for other people it's kind of going back and maybe writing the novel that they'd always wanted to write or that I really found this really strong thing in the research about people going back to find the dreams that they'd had when they were younger that that real self-actualization piece in Q3 and I think that that's so true and we don't talk about it in the culture but it also comes after darkness you know you don't get to the sunny uplands without having done the hero's journey and having done the kind of work on yourself and done the struggle although I'd love to recast it as a heron's journey can we shift it just a little bit I think we can shift it to a queen ager journey okay let's do that I want to to flip from the individual story of women emerging into third quarter and just you're also representing a huge segment of the population that is the dominant purchaser, decision maker, influencer in the vast majority of households. We don't yes, talk about that too much either, nor do you get the impression in advertising and marketing circles that that's yet quite landed. What do you No, No, it hasn't landed at all. So that is the other, that's the serious thrust of the kind of financial pit of noon. So the other thing that we find in the research, so Forge and Fire, then we find how, so how do these queen ages feel about themselves? So half of them feel completely invisible in the society. 63% say that they would be way more likely to buy from a brand that represented them and these women Forbes calls them super consumers they are behind over 90% of all household spending decisions because they're buying things both for their elderly parents and for their kids who can be young or their age so they're the glue right in the middle of society which is making so many financial decisions and yet no brands are speaking to them directly except for things like incontinence or maybe the odd cruise or a bit of kind of life insurance where they're always walking down the beach with a silver fox. And all of that is just so off-putting to the Queen Ages. So I think that there's a huge business opportunity here for businesses and brands to think about these women as their customers. Uh, Particularly in the recession, these women have got more money than other things. So they outspend millennials by 250% over half of the breadwinners. And the really interesting thing is that there have never been women like this at this point in midlife before. The really key thing about the teenagers is we are a pioneering generation. And it's there in the UK census. So in 2019, women over 40 start earning more money than women under 40 for the first time ever. So this is a new thing. Yeah, it's that educated boomer generation moving through. um... Yeah, and this is, we're kind of Gen X. So it's not, we're kind of, 
like the next lot on yeah, the next one. And we've we have worked ever since we left university. We've had careers. We've a lot of us have been the main income earners in our families, and so we're hitting this midlife point with a lot of financial firepower and a very different attitude about what that midlife moment looks like. So in the UK, we've had a big thing here around menopause, which is beginning. I was going to ask you about that. What do you think of that? Well, I think that is the first shout of the Queen Ages. And it's about a huge bit of health inequality. In the UK, GPs are doctors. They didn't have mandatory training on menopause till last year. So you could be a GP and basically not have had any training on the menopause which happens to 52 percent that's pretty unbelievable isn't it yeah and there's some really terrible statistics like you know a quarter of women who went to their doctor with menopausal symptoms got given antidepressants not hrt and there's also huge intersectionality on this so the poorest women in the uk are half as likely to get hrt as the richest ones so there's i'm not denying that there's a huge health inequity here and then things like the menopause charity in the uk think that one in ten queen ages have left their jobs because of menopause but what has happened, as often happens with victims of women, is this menopause conversation has been kind of weaponized now, I think, against women. And I think it's now playing into a gendered ageist narrative. So women are going from, you know, in your 20s, everyone tries to hit on you. In your 30s and 40s, everyone thinks you're about to have a baby. And then as soon as you get out of that now, they go, oh, she's like <laughs> a walking hot flush. She's a menopausal disaster zone. And I don't think. I don't think that does women any good. And for me as a feminist, feminism is about equality. It's about freeing women from their biology, not defining them by it actually at the point where it becomes kind of irrelevant. So a lot of brands... And you don't want the dominant conversation around this extraordinary set of decades to be so linked to one. No, and for, for some women, menopause is absolutely dreadful. But for the majority, you might feel a bit bad. But if you get the right treatment, you're fine. And so I think it's kind of weaponized this thing. So they're saying every kind of older woman is now like menopausal. It's the only thing that companies are providing. For you get women the feeling that it's a product pushing you know, it is. It's a, it's a sell a bunch of stuff. And yeah, it's a menopause really branding crazy. opportunity. I know in the New York Times just did a big piece about the menopause gold rush. But yeah. for me, this Queen Age moment, the power of these women, they're ca- what they're capable of, is way, 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 way bigger than menopause. Menopause is a small component, I think. So okay, it's, so let's, it's kind of important but not crucial. So this amazing group of women, a historic rise of the first generation of a massively empowered older women segment. Let's take a look at where companies and countries are on integrating this reality. The UK government is very busy trying to get its 50 plus back to work after COVID. Are companies playing their part? No. So the other big part of our research is around women and work and particularly queen ages, 45 plus. What do they want from companies and what are they getting? And I think the context of this is really interesting. So Sheryl Sandberg's big piece of research last year, the Lean In McKinsey report was called The Great Breakup. And it basically said for every woman being promoted to director level or SVP, as you call it in America, there were two women were leaving. And there is an exodus from the workforce of the women at this point, which is a huge problem for all of us who've been pushing for gender equity, particularly at the top, for a really long time. And part of the stubbornness, I think, of that shift as a journalist, I've been writing about you know women on boards and all that kind of thing for forever. So in the UK, FTSE 100, still only eight female CEOs. 
Fortune 500, I think you're now up to about 10 or kind of I think it's about 10 percent. But yeah. it's pretty stubbornly low. And that is because companies, corporates are losing the queen ages out of their workforces. The global head of the global chair of the 30% club told me in an interview for the Telegraph a couple of weeks ago that what we're seeing is a second brain drain, that women are now coming back to work after maternity, but then they're dropping out of companies' throws from about kind of 45 plus. So I think that what our research shows about the reasons for that is really interesting. So what the women want is flexibility, flexibility and autonomy over their kind of working hours and you know how and where they do things is 16 times more important to them than status and yet status kudos the kind of big office the flash salary the big title is how companies reward seniority so that's not working for the queen ages and then the other thing that they really want is to feel valued by their employers which a lot of them don't because they're kind of getting made redundant because they hit the kind of not pleasing gendered ageism bit and on top of that they want purposeful and meaningful work they want they feel like they've got a lot to offer their kind of obvious trifecta that seems really impossible to find in yeah and that purpose bit i think is really interesting because so a third to the most educated women are the least likely to have children and nearly a third of university educated queen ages so the kind of ones who are at the top of these corporates don't have children so therefore there's a really interesting piece i think around purpose and legacy for these women because if they don't have kids then that all is a bit different and i think what's happening is for a lot of women or what we see in our new research what the queen ages tell me in the endless groups that i do about this is that they just get to a point where they can't be bothered with the internal politics anymore they've done too much sitting in rooms kind of placating senior male egos as we know as you get higher in organizations and i certainly saw this myself as a very senior executive it becomes more of a boise club and they get to a point they're just like i've just done this for too long and i've had a woman say to me the other day i just can't do it anymore when when the men sit there and they're suggesting something that we tried 10 years ago and it didn't work then and i know it's i just can't be enthusiastic about it so i think there's a sense that the women become less pleasing they also are seen as less pleasing by this kind of male hierarchy. They get a bit more stroppy. They know that they have value and they just go sod it. And actually, at that point, if you've been in a corporate fellow, you've probably got enough resources to be able to go and do something else. And you can make money at consultancy. You can and you can set up your own business. So there are more queen ages becoming entrepreneurs like me at a rate of, of, than any other demographic. And our companies are much more likely to be successful than those set up by others the older entrepreneurs are much more successful yet only two percent of vc or less than two percent of vc capital is going to female founders so that yet again you get kind of hit with a, a kind of yeah. you know tri- another whammy but the, the no, interesting point about senior women i think and corporates is that most corporates are not even thinking about this it's just not on their agenda i wrote a big piece for the financial times a little while ago and i was trying to find companies that were doing good stuff for their senior women yes <laughs> Quite. So three things companies should be doing if they want women at all ages and levels. Well, I think offering flexibility, I think having a conversation. So I'm starting to go into some companies and say to them, okay, you want to retain your senior women and we do workshops with them based on our research around what it is that they want and what they're getting 
from the company. So I think that's a good place to start. But I think to really bear in mind and what we see with all older workers is the necessity for maybe a conversation that just because you've been doing something for such a long time, you may have got quite senior, sometimes it's time for a change and there's something really energizing about doing something different. And companies are going to need to start having conversations with their senior people going, okay, you've been doing this for a long time. What would you actually like to do? You know, not we're making you redundant or we're shuffling you off, but going, you've been doing this for a long time. What would you like to do? Are you really interested in sustainability? Maybe. Um, We know that for this cohort, meaning and purpose becomes really important. I think companies should be asking, particularly their senior women, what does that look like for you? How could you help us? What should we be doing? And really tapping into that experience and wisdom and all the ideas that they've got, rather than letting the women leave and set up companies which then do it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So how much do you think that is dramatically different than men at this age and stage? Because we're hearing a lot about this from, I'm sure that many of our male listeners are saying, yeah, I'm exactly the same. I want flexibility and part-time and a gentle offloading, not a sudden cliff end retirement. I think it probably is true for men, but I think that men are still getting kind of shuffled through to the higher echelons in a way that women aren't and I also think that the men aren't being hit with this maelstrom of other kind of midlife stuff so they're probably less involved with the teenagers falling apart we know from the statistics that they're not the ones who are driving four hours you know to go and look after their ailing mother who's just had a fall so that kind of the emotional kind of family payload of all of that stuff also really falls on women at this point so I think what women need is some flexibility and some support from their employers through those difficult times so you're a great so you're, they, you're a fantastic model of this entrepreneurship alternative that you are actually seductively holding <laughs> out to women at this age I'm surprised that companies are hiring you because I would think that they would see you and say oh god this is too much of a good thing I just want to <laughs> I just want to end on what's been the impact you're obviously flourishing and you love and you're very very passionate about what you do what's the impact on the people around you, your former colleagues, your kids, your husband, your family, what do they see or learn from your own transition, do you think? I think they're quite excited by it, quite inspired by it. I do a lot of keynote talking now all over the place about this, you know, about teenagers, about this moment, about my own story, about that shift into Q3 and what you need to do to make a success of it. I think that we're really very much on the beginning of people understanding about this. I mean, the 100-year life is relatively new. The shift for women, again, is relatively new. But as soon as you start to talk about it and going, hang on, there's, there's now this bit of good life. I'm really interested in this stuff about health span rather than lifespan. So if you can keep your health going, you can basically have between 50 and 75 or maybe beyond where you're still in really good nick and you can do all the things that you always wanted to do. But I think we're still very stuck on that tripartite, educated job retirement model, which doesn't really make any sense anymore. And when you say to people, what do do you really think you're going to work for the same company for like 50 years? They look at you, they know, they know that's not true. That's not going to work. I mean, I had a pretty good run. I was with my company for 23 years. I had a great time. So I think people know that that's not the case, but nobody's thinking about what, what muscles they need to be flexing in order to make this transition or what that might look like or 
Um, someone said to me the other day, God, I, I did have some passions when I was younger, but I've just been so busy being a kind of corporate <laughs> lawyer. Forgot I've forgotten what they were. So I think what we do a lot in the noon retreats is kind of really saying to people, OK, really tune in to yourself kind of for the first time, maybe in a decade, particularly for women who've been raising kids as well. It's like, who are you? What do you really want? What did you enjoy? You know, what turns you on in that kind of broad sense? What actually brings you a sense of passion, purpose, fun, love, joy? I'm big on joy. And I think we should be, be talking about that a lot. And I think that people around me can see that I'm, I think I'm happier than I've ever been. I feel like I'm flourishing. It's I been great. I love plowing my own furrow, having the time to do the things that I want to do. I have more time with my children. I have more time with my husband. I just feel I love the autonomy of my, of my life now. And I think that when you're made redundant, you feel like everything that you could do before goes with the job title. And what I wish somebody had told me when that happened to me was you were brilliant in that job because you are brilliant. You know, it wasn't the job that gave you those skills. You could do the job because you're amazing. And that's, of course, when you're made redundant, the last thing you feel is amazing. You feel like all that has been stripped. All that's gone. And then you find it. Yeah, that's been taken away. And you're like this strange alien creature underneath. You're like, who am I without that all that external status? But actually, the cloak is heavy and the cloak is constricting. And there's a huge freedom and joy in being able to use your own voice in the way that you want to. So I think everyone around me can see that that's the case. And I hope I'm kind of inspiring them to I make a similar, a similar leap. Great inspiration, Eleanor. I think you're a wonderful model of Jung's wish that uh, the greatest gift in life is to become who you truly are. And I think you are demonstrating that in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of channels. So thank you so much for sharing this story and all the secrets that we should be learning about queenagers and that this is only the noon of our lives. Thank you for being with us. Oh, well, thank you, Aviva. And thank you for all the help that you've given me on this journey, because we all need, I think the thing that you need most when you go through a big transition is a new tribe. And there's some people who've trodden that path before and who kind of, you know, know a bit about it. And there's so many things that I've kind of stumbled upon going, wow, I think this. And you go, yes, it's called self-actualization. There's all this kind of, you know, literature about it or whatever. So <laughs> I wrote about that somewhere. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, I think I've written about that before. But we all need, kind of all need help on that journey. So noon very much is trying to do kind of that big culture shift piece and trying to get brands to talk to teenagers. But we're also a consumer facing site where we have lots of teenagers actually on this journey themselves. We're go, all going off to go wild swimming. And, so where uh, should in circles sign up if they want to become part of this tribe? It's called Noon, as in the middle of the day, noon.org.uk. And my substack is called The Queenager. Actually, a Substack bestseller, one of the top 10 posts on Substack mm-hmm. last year. Because um, Cheryl Sandberg reached out to me when she left Facebook in her own noon pivot. Um, yeah, is a great, great, great fan of what I'm doing as the Queenager. So, um, yeah, if, you, if you'd like to get involved, come and, come and find us and you can sign up and become part of our community. And, and we've, got the most inc- we've got the most incredible advisory board as well of the most amazing Queenagers, of which Aviva is, of course, one. So, you know, come and join us. It's and fun you'll find here. all the links in the show notes. And I look forward, of course, to seeing you and many more of your Queenager colleagues on the podcast in the coming years. Thanks so much, Eleanor. Thanks for having me. 
For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better. Better. 